Well, as we look to God's word, I want to begin with a question uh, this morning. And that question is, uh, what would you say is the most important sign or most important symbol representing the Christian faith? What sign or symbol surfaces uh, in your mind that represents our faith? How would you answer that? Certainly throughout biblical history and church history, there have been many signs and many symbols representing biblical faith, representing and identifying people as a part of the covenant community and true faith in the Lord. Uh, As we look back at the Old Testament, for example, uh, many Jews at times would wear phylacteries, uh, these leather uh, containers wrapped around one's arm or wrists, uh, inside containing pieces of parchment with scripture references, scriptures on them, according to Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, reminding people of God's word and God's promises. You fast forward into the early church, the fish, even still popular today, the Christian fish, just two loops. You see it on the back of people's cars. Interesting place uh, to bear witness and identify yourself as a follower of Christ. It comes from the early church. It's the ichthus, ichthus fish. Those are the first Greek letters, the first Greek letter in each word of the phrase Jesus Christ Son of God, Savior, our Savior, the Jesus fish. Uh, what about the rooster? Might be a little surprising. I remember the first time that we pulled at, into Reformed Theological Seminary in 2002, where I would uh, attend seminary, and saw the campus, and then behind in the back of the campus was the chapel, and on top of the chapel was a rooster. Didn't know it at the time. But metal statues of roosters have been placed on top of cathedrals and chapels throughout church history, reminding people not to deny the faith. As Jesus said to Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Certainly, probably the most popular symbol representing the Christian faith, certainly today, would be the cross. Tattooed on bodies hung as necklaces, placed in churches. But do you notice that as you look around this sanctuary here, where we worship the Lord, as far as I know, none of those signs or symbols exist. Even right behind me, we we do not have a cross hanging there. Interesting. I think in part, we're driven by the Word of God. We're driven by Scripture, And Scripture has prescribed for us two central signs or symbols representing our Christian faith. Uh, They are the two signs in which we remember, we participate in, and we celebrate all that we have through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we have them right here at the front of the sanctuary before us each week. The cup the plate, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. The Lord's Supper and baptism. And not only are these the two central signs that we participate in and see before us, but these are the two signs that shape the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of his earthly ministry. He's with his disciples at the Passover meal. He takes bread. He takes the cup instituting the Lord's Supper, an important sign that we participate in 
perhaps the central sign. But then there's one that he also begins or takes on himself to begin his earthly ministry, the beginning of his earthly ministry, and that is baptism. And it's that sign, baptism, that I want us to focus on this morning as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Because it is this sign that really marks the beginning of his ministry. An interesting sign. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 4, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, we have considered the coming of Christ in his genealogy, in his birth, In his infancy, we looked last week at John preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. And now Jesus, as an adult, begins to prepare now for his ministry on earth. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Just five verses, but worth our, our full attention. Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here in the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, similar order of events, and themes through those three Gospels, we see that Jesus' baptism is the first act that he performs to mark off his ministry, to begin his ministry, the first act that he participates in. So before any miraculous work that he's going to perform, which we're going to see through the Gospel, before any healing of diseases or calming of seas, before he powerfully preaches and teaches, he undergoes this very simple baptismal ceremony or rite. Why would he do this? Well, we're going to see that when we understand the purpose of baptism, we see it has everything to do with the deepest of human needs, the greatest of human needs, and it is for that which Jesus came. As you meditate upon Matthew and work through the text, we should be surprised that Jesus is baptized at all. Remember back in verse 11, if you go just a few verses earlier, John had predicted that Jesus himself would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. John said Jesus would be the baptizer, not the baptizee. That's what he said. And so it's a bit of a surprise that Jesus is now receiving or feeling the need to be baptized. It's like the captain of a great ship stepping aboard his own ship. Instead of going up, up, up to the top deck to take the seat at the captain's chair, he steps steps aboard his ship, goes below deck 
to the lowest place, to be shoulder to shoulder with the workers in the engine room. It just doesn't seem to quite fit. What's going on? Why would he do this? We're surprised. Jesus sees the need to be baptized. Because what does baptism signify? The washing and cleansing from sin. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3 is the first time we come across baptism. The first time we're introduced to baptism is what we saw last week. John the baptizer is baptizing many people. If you look at verses 5 and 6, it says all Jerusalem and Judea, all the surrounding area was going out to John, being baptized by him in the river Jordan. And what were they doing? Confessing their sins. Certainly there is some connection between baptism and confession of sin. Repentance, that's what John was preaching. But this whole concept of washing with water doesn't begin in the New Testament. It goes much further back. We simply come upon the scene in Matthew 3 that there's baptism taking place. But it reaches centuries back. The people of God had known for some time that washing with water was a picture of purification, cleansing. In Leviticus 13 to 16, sprinkling with water was used as a rite of ritual purification from disease. In Numbers chapter 8, as Levites were set aside as priests, it says this, Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. Uh, The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that Noah and his family were saved, quote, saved through the water of baptism. A picture of God's saving grace and, and mercy. We can look at our own confession in the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is what it says in question 165 about baptism. It says, Baptism is the washing with water, a sign of the remission of sins by His blood, new life by His Spirit, adoption into His family, and resurrection unto life. It's more than a picture. It's more than a sign. But it's nothing less than a sign and picture of the gospel. Cleansing from sin through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So it raises the question, if baptism at least symbolizes cleansing from sin, why would Jesus see the need to be cleansed, to be washed with water? It makes sense in verse 14 of our text, when it says that John would have prevented Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? It reminds me of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room. You remember that circumstance in John 13, where Jesus ties the towel around his waist and begins to make his way around to the disciples, washing the feet of his own disciples. And of course, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Peter doesn't get it. Peter doesn't understand. Why is my Lord washing my feet? I should be washing your feet. And yet he says, unless I wash you, you can have no place, no part with me. Peter struggled. 
I think as we often do, with allowing our Lord to draw too close to our real needs. We want to keep a little bit of an arm's distance. It makes us uncomfortable. I think this is in part what John was struggling with, to see and to understand. He was having a hard time understanding that in being baptized, in being washed with water, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was coming down to our level. He's identifying with us to be with us so that we understand He knows our needs, our human weakness, our human frailty. That's what He was taking upon Himself. This this symbol of cleansing from sin that Jesus is taking upon Himself without saying a word He's essentially saying, I am with you in this. I am with you in your weakness and in your pain, in your sin. Wrestling through this text this week, I was struck by the fact that this baptismal sign, this ceremony that Jesus undergoes to begin his ministry is not only a common sign, It's a common sign that he takes on himself. But it's not only a common sign, it's both in a common place, and it's with common people. There's no special place that he goes to take this all-important rite as he is inaugurating the beginning of his ministry. There's no special place he goes. There's no special water that is used. There's no special ceremony. We're told in chapter 3, verse 5, that all Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding region is going out to John to be baptized by him. Think about the inauguration of a new president. Every four or eight years, what happens? There's an inauguration. He puts his hand on the Bible or puts his hand up and takes vows and makes commitments And many people are watching on at that kind of event. Many people are watching that. The crowds zero in on that. Not so with Jesus. The picture is many people, John Matthew tells us in chapter 3, are going out to the Jordan River. Many, many people in verse 5 and 6. And then you move down to verse 13. And, And who is going with the crowds, with the people? Only the eternal Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who formed all these people, the one who supplies the Jordan River itself, this man goes with the rest of the people into the water of baptism. Our Lord through Matthew is teaching us something about who he is. It's captured in in Dale Bruner's words. Listen to these words. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It's well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between two thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level identifying with us at every point, 
becoming as completely one with us in our humanity as he is understood to be one with God in eternity. And I think the way Jesus begins his ministry here in taking upon himself this sign of baptism, it really provides a whole theology about ministry, about how we are to minister to one another and how we are to minister to the world. Because his baptism speaks very loudly about his incarnation. That's what's reinforced here. God himself taking on humanity to dwell with man. His baptism tells us to minister to people by being with them. In their world, down at their level, moving toward others. That's Christ-like ministry and love. Moving into the world of others. This this text reminds me of, of two important theological terms capturing the nature of our God and the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. One is his transcendence. His transcendence. Uh, Our God is transcendent. He is our creator. He's outside of creation. He he rules above all things. Uh, Paul expresses it this way in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? But he's not only transcendent. Our God is imminent in our lives. This is Emmanuel, as Matthew has introduced to us. God with us. He draws near. He moves into our world. If you want to put it this way, he takes on our skin to know and to bear our pain and sin. We will often speak and, and, and pray uh, to our God as one who is transcendent. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. who rules above with all authority and power. This is true. But we also ought to be praying and thinking of our Lord as the one who is in the trenches with us. He's been there. That's, what, that's what's marking off the beginning of His ministry. He's going to go through this for us to feel our weakness and our frailty. The author of Hebrews chapter 4 puts it this way in chapter 4 verse 15. Jesus, our great high priest, who sympathizes with our weakness, tempted in every way yet without sin. And as Jesus was being baptized, that's what he's doing. He's identifying with humanity. And he's setting off, he's inaugurating the path to bear our burdens. He's willingly subjecting himself to what we are subjected to in life. Suffering, hostility, hunger and thirst. And this path is going to lead him to the cross. In a quite well-known book called uh, Night, you may be familiar with it by Eli Weissel, who was held in several concentration camps uh, throughout World War II. In that book, there's a famous line where he recalls being in one concentration camp, and he sees a line of people. And these line of people are being hanged. One after the other. And among those being hanged is a little boy. 
The crowd's being forced to watch this, he says. But the little boy does not die immediately. He's too light, physically too light. His neck does not break quickly. He's hanging there half dead and half alive. And suddenly someone cries out, Where is God? Where is God? And he remembers someone else saying, pointing at the boy, there he is. There is God, hanging from that noose. That's the depth, that's the weight, that's the skin, if you will, that Matthew wants us to feel in Christ's baptism and what he was taking on himself. Marking off not only the beginning of his ministry, but marking off the path in which he's going to subject himself to to tremendous suffering on our behalf. Even beginning with the temptation in the very next passage in chapter 4. To be our mediator, our intercessor. There's a 20th century hymn called, God is love, let heaven adore him. It says, God is love, and he enfoldeth all the world in one embrace. With unfailing grasp, he holdeth his children from every race. And when human hearts are breaking under sorrow's iron rod, then they find that selfsame aching deep within the heart of God. Notice what Jesus says in this passage. It's the only words he says are in verse 15. John wanting to prevent him from being baptized, and Jesus answered and said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. It sounds like something you would hear more likely at the crucifixion. It is finished. It has been fulfilled. Or at the resurrection. It is complete. All is done. But here at the baptism, at the beginning... Of his ministry. What does Jesus mean? Uh, this word righteousness is a very significant word throughout Scripture. Its meaning turns a little bit based on the context and where it's used. If you zero in, as I did in the Gospels alone, Mark doesn't even use the word. Uh, Luke uses it once, John uses it twice, Matthew uses it seven times. Of those seven, five are mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's five, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus is teaching about the characteristics that are to accompany a follower or disciple of, of Christ. Here are some of them, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The well-known chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. In Matthew's gospel, it's suggested and posited that righteousness means obedience to the will of God. Obedience to the will of God. That's what Jesus was setting forth in His baptism. He was resolute and set upon this path of obedience. Obedience to death, by which he's going to suffer and bear the consequences of transgression to the law of God, but also important obedience in life. Not only obedient 
to the point of death, but obedient to the law of God and the word of God to fulfill the righteous commandments of God for us. This is why uh, Paul says in Galatians 4 that in the fullness of time Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, Christ came in part to get himself under the law, to uphold the law on our behalf. People refer to this as the active obedience of Christ, to meet those positive, those commands of God for us. I'm not sure how many times I've read through this narrative or how many times you have. I was struck this, this past week, uh, just moved by the thought that our Lord in His baptism was d- determined to go the distance for us. Resolved to go the distance for us. As the obedient, perfect Son of Man and servant of the Lord. To go the distance to represent you and me through himself as perfect humanity and then to draw all of sin to one point and nail it on the cross. We are to be encouraged as we, as we look upon Christ and his baptism. We have an advocate. We have a mediator who has gone the distance for us. I remember my one attempt at a uh, full-distance triathlon, and probably my only attempt. A 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, 26.2-mile run. Completed the swim, completed the bike, but when I hit the run, mile four, mile six, and the ones in between, and I hit mile seven, I just hit a wall. That's what some people will say with some long-distance things. You just hit a wall. Some people call it running out of matches. You, you only have so many matches. When you burn them all up, you're done, right? Great reminder, humbling, right? Humbling reminder of our limitations. Those are physical limitations, right? But we have limitations emotionally, limitations in our will, limitations in our ability to obey our Lord. But our Lord, He does not fail us. He does not fail us. He goes the distance. He has fulfilled all righteousness. Perfect servant and son of God. If you have a question about your life's worth or your life's value, look no further than right here upon the Son of Man, the Son of God. What He was determined to do for us for you, for broken humanity, to carry out this work of redemption for you? Or do you have a question about the love of God? Look at the extent, the depth of which our our Lord went to accomplish the will of God for you. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said, What a support to our faith is this, that God the Father, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. What a comfort is this, that seeing God's love rest on Christ, as well pleased in Him, we may gather that He is as well pleased with us if we be in Christ. 
And what's so wonderful about this passage is not only what Jesus has done for us and what he's going to do for us as we see in Matthew, but in a way what he opens up to us and what he is going to set out to accomplish in us. Notice the effect that the baptism of Christ has. Verse 16, what happens? When he was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. The heavens are opened. The Spirit of God descends, and the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What a a sacred moment and, and kind of sacred space that we're brought into the presence of the triune God. Only a few places of Scripture where all three of the, of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are all mentioned right there on the scene. What a marvelous thing. It should capture us. Matthew here, though, is telling us not only that in Christ do you have God's divine favor, but in the Lord Jesus Christ we have all the resources that we need for life and godliness. And the way that Christ, as we'll see unfold, is desiring to shape his disciples, his followers. You've got the heavens opened. The heavens are opened. This is the one through whom the heavenly kingdom comes. John has already announced it. We're going to hear Jesus announce it in chapter 4. The heavenly rule comes. He's, in a way, opening up a new reality to us. Christians are those whose whose eyes, the eyes of their hearts have been enlightened. Access to God and His power and grace. The heavens are opened, and then we see through Christ the Spirit descends. Interesting, it's in the form of a dove. Uh, This is a symbol of recreation in some ways. In uh, Genesis chapter 8, as the dove is sent out, after the flood, It's a symbol Jesus will later use when he says to his disciples, be shrewd as serpents, gentle as doves. Perhaps a picture of gentleness and humility, the character of Christ-likeness. And then the voice of the Father, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We hear these same words Again, later in the transfiguration of Jesus, both at his baptism and at the transfiguration. It reminds us all that we have in Christ. The effect of Christ's baptism. The heavens are open, the Spirit descends, the word of the Father breaks forth. I think Matthew is perhaps telling us not only what Christ has done for us, but what He is opening up to us and what He is seeking to do in us. What He is doing in us. He has provided us all the resources needed for life and godliness. I'll close with this in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He wonderfully reminds us of why God became man, which is indeed the focus in great part of the baptism of our Lord, taking upon Himself humanity to represent us. 
why God became man in Christ and how through him he's working in us. Listen to what Lewis says. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people even here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just being, beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they're going to be wings. They may even give it an awkward appearance. The Lord Jesus Christ comes. He takes on humanity to represent us. He has opened the heavens, provided the Spirit. The voice of the Father breaks forth. He's forming in us His very character. He's at work. He's at work. We're not to be discouraged. We're to be encouraged. It is a process. And God is going to continue that sanctifying work in us and through us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the extent to which Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has gone for our redemption to form in us His likeness and character, to deliver us from sin and death. Lord, I pray that the eyes of our hearts and our minds would be fixed upon Him, that as much as anything, we would be in awe and wonder and delight for who He is. Lord, it is hard for us to fathom the depth of your love for us. But as we reflect and hear your scriptures, may we see more and more of that depth. For you are well pleased with your Son, and so you are well pleased with us. And continue that work in us that we might be filled with thanksgiving and joy. And Lord, bless us as a congregation as you do that work corporately as we encourage one another in this way. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.